Sometimes, things find the zeitgeist, and at other times, the zeitgeist finds them. Uh, the recent elevation of the Krampus fits into the latter category. An obscure figure outside of Austria for most of his history, the Krampus gradually began infiltrating pop culture in the 21st century. Uh, the rise of internet culture was very kind to Krampus, with many finding him to be a charming counterpoint to the treacly icons of Yuletide cheer. According to the Krampus and Popular Culture page on Wikipedia, the first feature film with the Krampus as the central character is 2013's direct-to-video Krampus, The Christmas Devil. There are at least nine others. I had to ask Cheryl to specify which Krampus film she wanted to discuss when she picked this one. There are two other Krampus films that were also released in 2015 alone. The character had a moment in the middle of the last decade. So, to specify, this is the 2015 Krampus film directed and co-written by Michael Doherty. My name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. Alright, welcome to another Christmas episode. This is our token Christmas horror movie. Apparently we're going to do one every year. Joining me on this one is Cheryl, as I mentioned before, who picked this one. Hello! And Brother Sylvan, who also who watched this. Here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you weren't super looking forward to this one. No, I'm a little weary of horror movies that Cheryl picks out for viewing. Oh, come on, they've all been memorable, and you missed Troll, too. <laughs> Yeah, how about that? That was a good episode. All right, <laughs> before we dive into the film, I'll give you a brief overview of the Krampus's history because this is something that's really big on internet culture. But if you know you stumbled across this podcast, even though you're a normie, maybe you need a refresher. All right, Krampus is a horned anthropomorphic figure resembling either a satyr or a demon. It is alpine in origin, but especially prevalent in the folklore of Austria and southern Germany. You see, during the Christmas season, Santa and Krampus visit children on December 5th, the day before St. Nicholas's feast day. Santa rewards nice children with toys and sweets, while Krampus would be the bad cop and punish naughty children with birch rods. Or, alternatively, he would take the naughty children, put them in his sack or his basket, and then drag them to hell. Historians are hazy on the origin of Krampus, but most believe that he's a pre-Christian figure who was incorporated into the Santa mythos when the character began catching on in Austria during the 11th century. By the 17th century, Krampus was a fixture in Austrian Christmas celebrations. Many communities had Krampus marches on December 5th, where the locals would dress up as the monster and scare small children. Conservative Austrian governments began cracking down on Krampus marches in the 20th century, thinking them indecent. Fascists outright banned the Krampus, and right-wing groups continued to target him well into the 1950s. However, starting in the 70s, attempts to revive the Krampus march began to gain traction, and it is now a common practice in most of rural Austria and also in Bavaria. And downtown Salem. Yeah, the, the Krampus is popular in our hometown of downtown Salem because, you know, witch crap. He fits right in. Yeah, there's multiple Krampus events, and I think in one of the stores you can go and get your picture taken with Krampus like the way you do with Santa at the mall. Does our Krampus get shit-faced? There were multiple instances in 2019 of drunken hooligans dressing up like the Krampus and causing trouble in small Austrian towns. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't participated in any of the Krampus events myself. Yeah, all I've heard about with Krampus, like, in, like, real life is that, like, people get a little bit handsy, a little bit schnockered. Yeah, as, uh... 
Rachel pointed out, to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, you make someone wear a mask, they'll tell you the truth. All right, plot recap. Three days before Christmas, the prosperous but dysfunctional Engel family gather together for the holidays. Max, the youngest child, is the firm believer in Santa Claus, and he has written him a letter imploring him to help his troubled family patch things together and have a traditional Christmas like the days of old. His family includes his teenage sister Beth, parents Tom and Sarah, and Tom's mother, whom the family calls Omi, and she speaks mostly German. Sarah's side of the family is visiting for Christmas, and that includes Aunt Linda and Uncle Howard, Sarah and Linda's cantankerous Aunt Dorothy, and Linda and Howard's children, Howie Jr., Stevie, Jordan, and baby Chrissy, as well as their bulldog Rosie. They, they brought the dog with them on the five-hour car ride. Max wants to keep the family traditions going, but tensions among his relatives saps their Christmas spirit. When his cousins snatch his Santa letter and read it out loud at family dinner while mocking him, he gets into a fist fight and yells out that he hates his family and even Christmas itself. <gasps> His father comforts him by telling him that even though there is chaos during the holidays, he should always love his family and he should give his letter to Santa regardless. In a fit of anger, Max tears up the letter and throws it to the wind outside and it's swept up into the sky. One element of this film that I really like is that while Max's dad keeps trying to like, you know, make him look on the bright side of this, he, he never bullshits him. He's just all like, hey. Yep, your relatives do suck. <laughs> I know you didn't choose your family, but you should try to see the bright side of them anyways. And he's like, why? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you got me there. <laughs> Later that night, a severe blizzard engulfs the town, causing a power outage. When Beth ventures out to check on her boyfriend, a large horned creature chases her. She hides beneath a delivery truck. A like an idiot. Yeah. And the creature leaves a jack-in-the-box where she just sort of hangs around and waits for the jack-in-the-box to come out and get her. Yeah, uh, so it's not really surprising that she's picked off first. She didn't know she was in a horror movie. She should have figured it out when the giant goat thing was jumping around after her. And the goat thing left the jack-in-the-box. Nothing nice is going to come out of that jack-in-the-box <laughs> once the pop goes the weasel finishes playing. But as Sylvan pointed out, the not-FedEx guy who uh, is delivering the packages, he's just dead in that van. And is like, why did the Krampus get him? What'd he do? <laughs> I don't think I want to know what the FedEx guy did. Yeah, I also like how they sort of dance around brand names that they didn't get permission from because when the not FedEx guy is leaving the delivery and he points out that there are other toys there, he's like, oh yeah, the guys in brown must have left them. Guys in brown. Yeah, that was actually pretty good. And Howard Jr. is chugging from a Mountain Dew bottle that is clearly not Mountain Dew. <laughs> Store brand Mountain Dew. Yum. <laughs> Tom and Howard leave the search for Beth. They find her boyfriend's house in ruins with the chimney split open and a large goat-like set of footprints in the house. Howard says it's a goat, but then Tom is like, what kind of goat stands on his hind legs? Because he was an Eagle Scout. He recognizes tracks. Outside, the two are attacked by an unseen monster who is just sort of a, a giant pile under the snow. Howard gets maimed during this, and Tom shoots him off. This is when Howard gets a bit of respect for Tom. A thing about the visiting family is that they're more visibly conservative, especially in, like, gun stereotypes, and them wacky Democrats are after us. And there's supposed to be, like, sort of a clash, because it's implied that the Engel family are a bit more liberal, but, you know, they live in a nice house in rural Ohio. How liberal can they be? 
maybe limousine liberal. Anyways. There's definitely some tension from the classism between the two families. Yeah, there's a bit where uh, they don't want this fancy creme brulee. How do you even pronounce that? Why don't you just make us mac and cheese with, like, cut up hot dogs in them? America. Anyways, they return home and board up the windows with boards that they had available. Later, a large hook with a living gingerbread man attached (laughs) slides down the chimney and lures Howie Jr. where he was dragged up despite his family's efforts to save him. Why this kid approached the taunting gingerbread man and decided to take a bite is beyond me. He literally came down on a fishing hook. Like, Krampus is pleasantly surprised that that worked. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, a fire log is inadvertently kicked aside during the struggle to save Howie Jr., setting the tree in the presence of Lays. You know, with the veto thing, I kind of thought that was for the baby. Because, like, the camera goes and shows you the baby, and then the baby's brother sits up. (laughs) (laughs) At this point, Omi speaks English long enough to present a monologue explaining that the creature hunting them is Krampus, an ancient demonic spirit who punishes those who have lost the Christmas spirit. She then recounts that when she was a child, this is a CGI animated flashback, although they're trying to imply that the figures are kind of like the stop-motion Rankin-Bass figures. Well, I kind of thought like it was like the Puffs commercial. Like, I'm like, a nose in need. <laughs> I was also getting Nightmare Before Christmas vibes, but yeah, all of those things. Oh yeah, she recounts that when she was a child, her parents and community lost their spirit due to the hardships of the war in Europe, as did she. And this summoned Krampus. He dragged everyone except her to hell, leaving behind a bell bauble with his name carved on it. The family remained skeptical, particularly Howard, until monstrous toys, hidden in presents delivered earlier, invade the house. While upstairs, Stevie and Jordan are lured to the attic by Beth's voice. Meanwhile, downstairs, the adults hear them screaming. Tom, Sarah, and Linda go up to investigate, only to find Jordan being swallowed whole by Der Clown, the jack-in-the-box from before. What? His name is Der Clown? Yeah. That's horrible. The family fends off the toys and the gingerbread men. There there are more living gingerbread men who are just, like, firing a nail gun at Howard. But Krampus's elves leap in through the windows, taking Dorothy and Chrissy. Howard, desperate to get his kids back, jumps on Der Clown's back, and then he is dragged away as well. It's so much worse that its name is Der Clown. (laughs) Tom decides that the family should flee to the abandoned snowplow on the streets outside. Omi stays behind to distract Krampus, who emerges from the fireplace and attacks her with his bag of toys. This is the first time we get a good look at Krampus well into the third act, and Sylvan was quite disappointed by this. There's not a lot of Krampus in this Krampus movie. Outside, Tom, Sarah, and Linda are dragged under the snow by the elves, while Stevie is captured by them. Krampus confronts Max and gives him a bell bobble wrapped in a piece of his discarded letter. Realizing that tearing up the letter was what summoned Krampus there in the first place, I mean, he had an inkling, but this is when he finally figures it out, Max chases after the demon, catching up after Stevie was tossed into a hole leading to hell by the elves. Max sincerely apologizes for losing his Christmas spirit, and although Krampus seems to accept his apology at first, he then starts laughing maniacally and then throws Max into the pit. 
Max then awakens in his house on Christmas morning with very different color grading in the film stock. Discovering that his family is alive and well downstairs, he thinks that what happened was just a nightmare. However, he unwraps a present to reveal Krampus's bauble, leading the family with an ominous look on their faces as their memories of the horrific events slowly come back to them. The camera pans out, revealing that the family is being watched through a snow globe by Krampus, along with hundreds of others in his collection. End of film. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, out of all of the reviews I read of this film, even the people who liked it seemed to think that the ending kind of sucked. Yeah, it honestly gave me some, like, Nightmare on Elm Street tacked-on vibes. <laughs> Just, like, getting pulled through the window. It's supposed to be ambiguous, like, are they in hell, or is this a sort of a Christmas carol, it's a wonderful life thing, where they're getting a second chance? Maybe it's both. It seems like hell. Yeah, I just assumed that they were stuck in a snow globe forever. So I, I, I was wondering, though, are they stuck in Chris, Christmas morning forever? Is the snow globe also a Groundhog's Day device? See, the movie just keeps on giving. <laughs> All right, development for this. Michael Doherty, who first got his foot in the door uh, in Hollywood by writing the screenplays for X2, X-Men United, and oh Super <laughs> Superman Returns, was fresh off the success of his 2007 anthology horror comedy, Trick or Treat, when he began considering doing an, a Christmas-themed horror film. Sometime in 2011, a friend sent him a Christmas card featuring the Krampus, which led him to a rabbit hole of passionate discovery. Doherty struggled to find a distributor for his Krampus screenplay, but Universal eventually agreed when Doherty agreed to a PG-13 rating. Which, yeah, I, I think this movie would have worked a little better if it was R. You could tell it wanted to be and it was holding itself back. Yeah, you pointed out specifically the scenes when uh, Howard uh, is injured in the snowbank and they're trying to imply that it's a pretty severe injury. They have to patch him up, but they can't show you too much gore. Yep, this man who is right there on screen that we can see him, but we can't see the injury that everybody is talking about and gesturing to. <laughs> uh, the screenplay mutated quite a bit from the project's conception to shooting. Uh, initially, Krampus was more of a straightforward horror film, but Universal rejected it. They didn't want like a slasher movie except with a Santa guy who was just picking off horny teenagers one by one. So Doherty uh, revisited Christmas Carol and It's a Wonderful Life and decided that both of those didn't really need to be tweaked all that much until they became horror films and decided to like rebuild the story from that. He wanted the first act of the film to be a like straightforward family Christmas movie, particularly with Christmas vacation vibes, and then have the monster show up after everything's established, which I think is the smarter move, really. To paraphrase, most Christmas movies about a clashing family overcoming their differences in the spirit of the holiday. But hey, what if things escalated instead? And what if their psychic malaise allowed Krampus to seep into the reality? Also, the Krampus figure evolved from a more typical slasher uh, movie vit monster and the Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees vibe to a more playful Freddy Krueger one. Doherty wanted Krampus to convey a sense that he enjoyed the cat and mouse element of his work. And it's just, you know... Just getting into it. Let me tangle this little creepy gingerbread cookie down the chimney and see what happens. I Holy mean... crap, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> that made his day. And it wasn't even the baby. It was a big one. <laughs> I mean, like, I swear he was going. The camera's like, look at the baby. And you're like, oh, no, the baby. And then his little brother gets up. Like, the bigger brother gets up. And you're like, what? <laughs> what? 
But even in the first act, there's a lot of tacked on 2015 era Christmas cynicism. The opening scene is a bunch of people trampling each other on Black Friday. Uh, two kids having a fist fight during a Christmas play. Uh, in the background, there's a cable news anchor who's droning on about war and Christmas bullshit. That feels a bit quaint now. I think people are dialing that back a little bit. Maybe I'm being optimistic. You're being optimistic. Yeah, I am. <laughs> we have relatives who believe in the war on Christmas. Uh, yeah, the, there are bits of that which, you know, came home to me. Um, a lot of the bits are like, hey, you have to ac- accept your delusional, insufferable, annoying relatives because they're your family. And I was like, yeah, I might have believed that five years ago, but I have a distant second cousin who stormed the Capitol. Fuck that guy. Oh, Charlotte doesn't seem to have been aware of that. I don't I don't use social media. <laughs> yeah, you're the smart one. <laughs> My life is much less stressful now. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, going back to the Black Friday sequence for the shooting, that was one of the only sequences that was shot in location. It was at an actual department store in New Zealand. Pretty much the entire rest of the movie was filmed exclusively on sound stages, and you can tell. The snow for this film was... Not asbestos, I assume. (laughs) No, it wasn't asbestos. It was shredded diapers. (laughs) Well, I don't think they were used. (laughs) That doesn't sound pleasant. Better than asbestos, though. I'm just getting hit with, like, hygiene products. Boom, boom, boom. (laughs) Merry Christmas. It doesn't sound environmentally friendly. No, it doesn't. Krampus was designed to evince the Grim Reaper. They had him wear a rubber Santa masks in order to never reveal what he actually looked like, so you can sort of project your own horrific Krampus onto him, which is a bit of a cop-out. I liked his goat eyes. I did like his goat eyes and his little snake tongue. There are a couple of other shortcuts. Like, for example, the actors all have fog in their breath when it gets cold. That was shot separately. They had other people, like, say the lines in a cold area so that there'd be fog, and then they sort of just CGI'd it onto the actors. That sounded like they went through a lot of trouble. That's like a weird kind of stunt double. What kind of (laughs) stunt double are you? Like, what kind of dangerous stunt are we doing today? You're going to get cold. One thing I learned is that there are, like, specific people who have really hyper-odd jobs. Like, whenever there's a shot of, like, Vin Diesel's hand doing something, it's always the same dude's hand. Not Vin Diesel's hand? Well, no, you only have Vin Diesel for, like, a couple of weeks, so any shot where you don't need to see his face, you just have somebody else do it. Oh, that's a weird way to save money, but I get it. Yeah, if you don't see the famous actor's face, it's not them. Oh, I was like, is Vin Diesel, like, really nervous and upset about his own hands? He's just like, I I think can't be on film. (laughs) (laughs) No, Vin Diesel is comfortable having his hand on film. He's just off doing something else when they're doing the extreme (laughs) close-ups of body parts. They're just expensive hands. They're expensive hands. In addition to Krampus, the film references other icons of European folklore, such as the Yule Goat, and the gingerbread cookie being dangled on that hook down the chimney is referencing Meat Hook, one of the Yule Lads, (laughs) an Icelandic tradition. Meat Hook goes from house to house on December 23rd and uses his titular instrument to steal meat smoking on the fire for Christmas. Or in this case, Howie. Yeah, he also does capture Howie Jr. on December 23rd. That's his day. (laughs) 
The music for this film was composed by Douglas Pipes, who had also done Trick or Treat. His goal was to combine motifs of Christmas carols with elements of pre-Christian folk music of pagan societies. He incorporated the percussive use of chains, bones, bells, and drums with animal skins. For the choir effects, he instructed the performers to chant and whisper in various conflicting languages simultaneously. That worked for me. I thought that was eerie. Yeah, I listened to the isolated score because, you know, sometimes you just get lost in the film and you don't really notice the music, especially if it's effectively making its point without drawing too much attention to itself. And yeah, it's effective for what it is. I enjoyed the use of Bing Crosby throughout. I mean, that's like a good choice for, you know, going at what um, what Max was focusing on, which is like an idealized, old-fashioned, nostalgic Christmas, but it's old enough to also give an air of creepiness. Yeah, the tone for the film is very much set during the Black Friday sequence where, you know, all the people are storming in. They're, like, trampling on the store employees and knocking them off ladders. And And getting tased by the security guards. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's all set to uh, Crosby's rendition of it's beginning to look an awful lot like Christmas, which is a bit on the nose, but this film's not going to be subtle. You don't come to to a Krampus movie for that. I um, I actually, you reminded me how much I enjoy the, the smile on the security guard's faces when they're tasing that couple. <laughs> we did spend some of our teenage years working at a mall. <laughs> All right, now for the cast breakdown. Uh, we have MJ Anthony as Max Engel. I don't have too much to say about his performance. I didn't find him shrill or annoying, which is A-plus remarks for child actors in movies like this for me. Yeah, I thought he was actually very effective in it. Um, I I IMDb'd him while we were watching because I was curious if he's done much else. And he does have other acting credits, but I haven't seen any of his other things. Yeah, he's currently 18 because this movie came out recently, but not that recently. According to Doherty, he was really flirty on set. And I guess he was young enough to get away with it. But yeah, co-stars, older characters, people behind the camera, whole whole deal. So yeah, he gets to have that follow him around. All right, then we have Adam Scott as Tom Engel. Even the critics who didn't like this movie liked Scott in it, and yeah, he's he's pretty phenomenal. I mean, I like him in just about everything I've seen him in, but this particular, it's a it wasn't the easiest part for this type of movie, and he he was able to give it some dimension, which it really needed. Yeah, yeah the, I, li- I liked uh, his character and like his arc and growth throughout. Yeah, and they they do spend a lot of the first act. They're sort of. Maybe not getting you to like the characters because, you know, they're getting picked off one by one, but they do give you an investment in them and a a reason to care about whether they live or die. And there are little moments where, you know, Scott is sitting next to Tony Collette on the couch and they're like, I miss us. It was like, yeah, it's a nice little bit. It gives you something to hang on to besides gingerbread men firing a nail gun. And speaking of people who are good in just about everything they're in, Tony Collette as Sarah Engel, the wife. I mean, my interest in this movie uh, immediately increased once I realized she was in it. She's one of my favorite actors. <laughs> yeah, not as much to do as Adam Scott, but yeah, I haven't liked every Tony Collette movie I've seen, but I've always liked her in them. Speaking of which, uh, we're on to a that guy. There are a lot of that guys in this. Uh, David Kochner as Howard. 
this gentleman, uh, if you don't recognize that name, you definitely have seen stuff that he's in, and he basically plays the same dude every time. He's a character actor. You know, he's an anchorman playing this character. He's in the office playing this character. Thank You for Smoking, which I think is a pretty underrated movie. He's playing like a tobacco lobbyist. Well, he's not tobacco lobbyist. I think he's a firearms lobbyist. Yeah, he's very, very effective at being unlikable, but like in a skillful character actor way. Yeah, I want that bald, vaguely sexist douchebag. Get Kochner to play him. <laughs> uh, I wrote down all the actors uh, because I hadn't seen Krampus before this recording. I wasn't sure who I wanted to talk about and who I didn't. But uh, yeah, another that guy. Uh, Conchata Farrell as Aunt Dorothy. <laughs> That's what you, you said when you when she showed up, like, oh, I, I don't like anything that she's in, but I like her anyway. And yeah. that is how I feel as well. <laughs> yeah, she's the maid in Two and a Half Men, a pretty shitty sitcom, but she's a fun character in it. She's also the sassy maid in That's My Bush. Trey Parker and Matt Stone's attempt to do a uh, George W. Bush White House sitcom after he got elected. It got canceled before 9-11. It is an interesting time capsule, but it is not good. <laughs> <laughs> I had forgotten that that existed. Oh, yeah, she's the sassy maid in that as well. She gets a lot of dick jokes, which she can basically tell in her sleep. Yeah, she's playing a riff on her sassy maid character here. I uh, guess to do a couple of fun one-liners about, you know, drinking with the underage children and firing the shotgun at the various evil toys. Good use of your conchata. And then we have uh, Krista Stadler as uh, Omi Engel. Oh! she did such a nice job she's one of my favorite parts of this movie she was cast at the very last minute their first two choices for austrian grandma had to drop out so considering that you know she was the bronze medal and she basically had to learn her lines right away i think she, she carried what she did and also you know she had to deliver a great deal of this film's heart which it does have a surprising amount of heart for being a cheeky 2015 krampus horror comedy it's catching Christmas movie, but like I honestly like her eyes in that movie. Just I'm like, oh my gosh, the Nana! All right, uh, this film was scheduled for a November 25th release, but it was bumped to December 4th so the premiere could coincide with the Krampus March. I don't know why they didn't do that in the beginning, but they did. <laughs> uh, there was also a promotional graphic novel released with story by Doherty, a script by Brandon Seifert, and uh, art by a number of people. The only person I recognized was Fiona Staples. Ooh, so it was pretty. Or at least her segment was pretty. I can't speak for anyone else because I wasn't familiar with their names. Krampus was not screened for critics beforehand, which is usually a sign that the studio has very little faith in the film. However, when it did come out, the reviews were actually fairly positive. It has a 67% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is very high for a horror movie. There were favorable comparisons to Gremlins and various other Joe Dante creature features. Most of the people who liked it said that it had a fun B-movie vibe. Almost none of them were crazy about the twist ending, as I mentioned. Some people complained about tonal inconsistencies. Everyone was like, hey, yeah, this cast is way better than this movie deserves. Yeah, no arguments. Cheryl's face implies that she objects, though. Cheryl saw this in theaters and then bought it on Blu-ray. I did not buy this movie, but I would have. <laughs> it was bought for you? No, my husband bought it. Oh, okay. He also enjoyed this movie. He's just hiding. <laughs> <laughs> Krampus had a budget of $15 million. It got $61.5 million in returns, which is a pretty healthy profit. It uh, beat out The Good Dinosaur in its release. So, yeah, it's better than the worst Pixar movie. Yay! <laughs> You know what? You say that like it's a bad thing, but I feel like that's, you know, that's good. 
All right, and uh, now it's time for themes. First thing I wrote down was transgression. In this context, transgression is the act of taking an icon of childhood innocence and casting it into the shadows. People often get a thrill from taking objects of their childhood and reframing it with the flaws and seedy atmosphere that they've since acclimated to in the years afterwards. This is most frequently conveyed in modern pop culture by taking superheroes and making them real dark and gritty because they're adult now. However, Christmas is especially susceptible to this. Transgression was a discussed theme in the Black Christmas episode I recorded with Rachel last year. You see, there's an inherent adolescent streak to this. Many transgressive reboots of Kitty Fair wind up being just as immature as their forebears, just in a different way. And there's just an inherent teenage element present because that is often the time where people start testing boundaries and questioning authority figures with a newfound sense of severity. And since Santa is both a sacred cow and an authority figure, making him all dark and edgy is an obvious move. And hey, here's Krampus, a figure that's been part of the Christmas mythos for centuries, except the man tried to scrub Krampus out. That's even more appealing. There was definitely a time where Christmas was like a, a, a traditional time for ghost stories and stuff. So this, this kind of fits into that too. It's more like a callback than a total transgression. I mean, it's definitely a transgression to, like, our parents or our grandparents' Christmas or how Christmas was solidified as a family-friendly holiday starting, you know, in the mid-19th century and then just sort of kept getting safer and safer and more anodyne going into the uh, the, the, the 20th. Uh, yeah, at the same time, you can say, hey, this Krampus movie is actually traditional because Krampus and also ghost stories. Sullivan is correct. You get to have your cake and eat it, too, with the Krampus. But uh, this also segs into my second point, which is counter-programming. I brought this up also on a previous podcast recording with Rachel, but this was the When Harry Met Sally episode. You see, When Harry Met Sally came out in the summer of 1989, which in the United States is popcorn movie blockbuster season. However, instead of being buried by Batman, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, and Lethal Weapon 2, When Harry Met Sally became the go-to option for people sick of going out to see big, dumb special effects spectacle. It banked upon, I'm sick of explosions and product placement. I heard that that Billy Crystal thing was pretty funny. Let's see that instead. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I feel that Christmas horror movies are made to fill a similar role, just in a different sense of tone. And yeah, every major American holiday has at least one slasher movie. I almost recorded a podcast episode about Thanksgiving a few weeks ago. <laughs> Are you not familiar with Thanksgiving? Um, is that the one that was like the Hulu Into the Dark series? Uh, no, Thanksgiving is a slasher movie where the ghost of the first turkey killed on Thanksgiving manifests and seeks revenge. That seems a lot better than the Hulu's Into the Dark one. I'm, I'm sorry, did you use the word better to describe that? <laughs> There's... If pilgrim family that gets like hired and then they just slowly murder people it's terrible uh, yeah the pilgrims murdered people very fast but yeah well valentine's day and easter have slasher movies christmas has more horror movies than any of them even if you narrow it down to just krampus movies it took less than five years for them to outnumber the leprechaun franchise I mean, I still don't even understand how the leprechaun franchise is a franchise didn't you say all those movies failed 
Uh, I didn't. They they do well enough for them to keep making them, I guess. Got to pad out your um, video rental shelves and then your uh, streaming service at something. Oh, Why not the okay. Leprechaun? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I feel that Black Christmas, Silent Night, Deadly Night, Gremlins, and the various others exist in order to provide a balm to the forced jollity of the holiday season. Because there, while there are times where I love Christmas, there are other times when it gets really stressful and expensive. And I often feel like I'm being roped into something that I was never given a chance to agree to. And yeah, the encroaching darkness and the knowledge that yet another year is going down the drain in my finite life can give stark contrast to the saccharine set dressing of the holiday season. And in moments like that, I understand the appeal of a film like Krampus, where everyone is just giving a middle finger at everything and talking about how fake it is. Wee! <laughs> Sorry, you just, I got I went right into like the Batman Christmas special. <laughs> it's a wonderful life. I could never get past it. So like that's where my brain went. <laughs> I could never get past the title. You and me both, Batman. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, I guess another point I could bring up on this is the classist and political outlook clash of the two families getting together. I didn't know this that. There's some mild transphobia in there. Yeah, I didn't know that was going to be a theme in this one because I hadn't seen this film before. And, and yeah, there's there's a bit where um, the two girl cousins are dressed in masculine clothing and they're wrestling with each other. And yeah, Sylvan's not wrong. There's a bit of it there. I was also thinking of the part where Beth says that she doesn't want to share a room with girls who stand up to pee. Oh, I didn't notice that. Maybe I was in the bathroom for that. I did not care for that line. I can imagine why. Yeah. I mean, she got taken out first, so the Krampus is on your side. <laughs> the Krampus took her out first because she went outside first. The movie took her out first. <laughs> I'm okay with Krampus having a special, uh, special like goal to go after transphobes. That's fine with me. Maybe the FedEx guy is a transphobe. Maybe that's why Krampus got him first. There we go. I bet hole solved. I, I bet the Krampus is friends with the Baba Duke. I have a question for you. Yep. The snowmen, do you think that they are corpses? Because they don't move, and they just keep coming, like, they're just there closer and closer, and they're wearing, and then, like, the one that's in front, like, I was like, oh, my God, it's Howie. I thought that, too, that whenever one, one of them got picked off, a snowman would, would appear representing them, but, yeah, I didn't notice any follow-through with that. I think there are just snowmen there because it's just a reminder that, you know, there's someone out there watching you. Okay. Snowman made of diapers. <laughs> you don't like it. <laughs> All right, that's everything I have to say about Krampus. Is there anything that either of you would like to add before we wrap things up? I totally dug the puppets, like, the whole time, especially the angel puppet. I, I thought the jack-in-the-box one was a very <laughs> nicely creepy. Yeah, Cheryl liked that he gave applause before the elves burst in. bowing to them like oh thank you i hate his name so much the clown no all right and with that final note thank you for listening join us next time for another christmas movie